This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, uh, welcome to the post-conviction Derek Chauvin, George Floyd justice world, which we'll be talking about at the end of the show. Our listeners and viewers probably know by now we did receive a triple guilty plea in the George Floyd murder case. We'll be talking about that later on, as well as some other interesting developments um, in the Middle East. But before we get there, we have a great interview that you did with Professor Rabab Abdelhadi and Professor Sean Malloy. It seems like the attacks on academic freedom as they relate to Palestinian speech and issues around Palestine are being ratcheted up on Facebook and on Zoom and other places. Well, just we have a new Ministry of Information in the United States. <laughs> it's and called it's Zoom called, and Facebook. It's called yeah. Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. Social they media. They are in control, social media in general. They are now in control of what people can say and what they cannot say under the terms of uh, service. That's where they hide behind. Yes. Nevertheless, they're more powerful than mainstream media. They're bigger than NPR, they're bigger than CNN, they're bigger than Fox News. And so the latest episode, because we've had Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi before uh, on the show, and uh, she talked about all the attacks targeting her program, Ahmed, which is the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. And now the the latest thing, Zoom has deleted again an event uh, by Ahmed. Uh, which is, by the way, co-hosted, as you've said, by Dr. Sean Malloy, uh, professor at the Department of History and Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at UC Merced. So now you have the the University of California involved. You have the state system, the university, you, you know, USC also involved. The title of the event is uh, Whose Narratives? What Free Speech for Palestine? The irony of this, Jess, is that this event is about free speech yeah. and Palestine. So let's listen to Dr. Malloy and uh, Dr. Abdelhadi. Zoom canceled an event featuring Layla Khalid at San Francisco State University in the fall after pressure from pro-Israel groups such as the Lawfare Project. Several subsequent events at other institutions were also canceled by Zoom and other platforms such as Facebook and YouTube. At the time, Zoom said it had canceled the event because of Khalid's reported affiliation in a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization. Also, the event was a violation of Zoom's terms of service. Zoom faced a backlash. Now the video conferencing provider has pledged to let institutions moderate their own content with some exceptions. Joining us to discuss this and more, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, Director and Senior Scholar at the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies, Ahmed, at San Francisco State University, and Dr. Sean Malloy, Professor at the Department of History and Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at UC Merced. Welcome to Arab Talk. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jamal. Let me start with uh, Dr. Uh, Abdelhadi. You're now facing a similar issue, now from Facebook, 
and other platforms as you are about to launch a round table discussion on Palestine and free speech that will take place on Friday, April 23rd. Whose narrative, what free speech for Palestine? Tell us what's going on. That's, that's the title. And I think now Zoom also is planning to cancel the event. What's going on? Thank you. Thank you, Jamal, for having us. And uh, good evening, Masal Noor, Ramadan Kareem, to everybody on your show and everybody who's watching. Uh, yes, uh, this event actually on Friday, April 23rd, whose narratives, What Free Speech for Palestine, was the initiative of Dr. Sean Malloy. Uh, Dr. Malloy uh, has, was planning, his university was planning Free Speech Week at the end of February. And uh, he reached out to me and he can speak about our history. And I said uh, to invite me and to invite Leila Khaled uh, to speak on his program. And I was suggesting that how about we can have everybody who was participating in the September 23rd event and focus it now on the questions of free speech. So what is really ironic is that an event on free speech for Palestine ends up being silenced as well. So any questions of discussing narratives, Palestinian narratives, narratives of gender justice and resistance, which was the title of the event in September 23rd. It was whose narratives, gender justice and resistance, a conversation with Leila Khaled. Leila Khaled was not the only person who was going to speak. We actually were very honored to have a distinguished panel with Ronika Sreels, the anti-Zionist, very well-known Jewish organizer and activist and leader of the African National Congress, who also served as a minister in Nelson Mandela's government, who was, continues to be active in solidarity. We had Laura Whitehorn, who is an anti-Zionist, Jewish activist, uh, queer feminist, who is very active in Jewish Voice for Peace and also co-founder of the Recent Aging People from Prison. And he, she herself has spent 14 years in prison. We had Seiko Odinga, uh, who is a Black liberation fighter, who was with the Black Panthers Party, worked briefly with Malcolm X before Malcolm X was assassinated and spent over 33 years in prison as well. And then we had uh, Rula Abu Dahu, who is the director of the Institute for Women's Studies at Birzeit University, which is the oldest and the most uh, respected, actually, academic, academic, scholarly, and advocacy institute for women's studies on women's studies throughout the region, throughout not only the Arab world, but also you can talk about the whole region if you want to also think about Israel that always claims that uh, Israel is liberating and civilizing uh, Palestinian women and Palestinian people and so on. So we had this whole discussion and the purpose of it was to actually speak about narratives that are con continuously erased. Palestinian narratives, narratives of connections, of internationalism, or collaboration with each other, speaking about the importance of not enabling and allowing pro-Israel uh, forces and the industry lobby to emphasize that uh, uh, anti-Zionism means anti-Semitism, uh, a claim with which we totally disagree, and majority of our comrades and sisters and brothers, including in the Jewish community, are part of. So we had this whole menu set up to discuss all these exciting ideas and connections and so on. And of course, Zoom shut us down. And unfortunately, our own university went along with it and respected Zoom's terms of service. As you said, Jamal, uh, October 23rd, 
colleagues from various universities staged also another uh, uh, Zoom sessions, and that some of them were silenced as well. And now we come and we are trying to actually speak about the free speech. That was silence. And now the free speech on Palestine is silence as well. So even with that, so I'm, uh, it's, it's actually quite disturbing. We are intent on continuing with our um, program because this is something for our students. This is something for our faculty. This is something for us as scholars. This is something for us as a community. This is a matter of public concerns that everybody should be uh, discussing. And just because pro-Israel lobby are not happy with the fact that we're discussing what Israel is doing, that's really, that's up to them to tell Israel to change its behavior. It's not up to them to silence us and shut us down because we're speaking the truth. Dr. Uh, Malloy, you are a history professor. I mean, I look at this event, I look at this event, it's really an event about free speech. So you're aware of the history of the First Amendment and free speech in this country, and then the United States basically criticizing other countries for having a Ministry of Information, which basically censors free speech. Now you have Zoom, Facebook, uh, and other platforms. They are taking the role of the Ministry of Information in this country. What is uh, the, your university, you see the UC or, or CSU in the case of uh, Dr. Rabab al-Hadi, are going to do about something like this? How are you going to be able to explain what's happening to your students? Yeah, yeah, and that was honestly one of the reasons that I first reached out to Dr. Abdul Hadi after the cancellation of the fall event. Um, uh, Dr. Abdul Hadi had come to my university back in 2017 uh, to give an inaugural lecture in, in our series on decolonizing Palestine. And ironically, Rabab, you talked about whose narratives, right? And this question of whose narratives get heard, right? Uh, and it was a wonderful start to that series. Um, and, and so it, after the cancellation of the original event, um, and what appeared from the outside, at least, and I can't speak to, to your experience, but appeared to be a kind of lack of support from San Francisco State University. Um, that I don't know, I wanted to reach out and try to provide whatever platform I could. Um, and you know, in terms of the role of the university here, it's worth, I think it's worth pointing out that you know, long before we got into these issues with Zoom or Facebook or, Facebook or, or social media, there's long been a kind of Palestinian exception to free speech in the First Amendment, right? Um, you know, I, I first became closely involved in organizing around Palestine in 2014, following Gaza and also the firing of, of Dr. Stephen Salida. And, and so e even, even prior to this current issue we're facing now with the integration of technology uh, and these kind of uh, corporate, corporatized neoliberal university systems into our classrooms, into our research, there was already this issue around the First Amendment and exceptions around the First Amendment that applied to Palestinian speakers and those advocating for Palestinian causes in a way it didn't apply to other causes. Uh, and then, of course, you add on top of that the current situation we face now uh, with the growing ubiquity of platforms like Zoom for delivering our research and our teaching. Um, and you know, uh, the other reason I became involved in, in, in trying to restage this event is that the Council of U the University of California Faculty Associations, in the aftermath of the cancellation of the original event, wrote a letter to the new UC president, President Drake, and raised specifically this issue around what does it mean when we turn over control of our classrooms, control of our research, control of our ability to present our findings and have our voices be heard? What does it mean when we turn that over to a corporation like Zoom? 
Um, and in response to that, the, the provost of the University of California, Michael Brown, uh, pledged support with something like this to ever happen at the University of California. Um, and so that brings us up to the present, right? Um, and uh, literally, we received uh, word about five minutes before I hopped on this call with the two of you that Zoom had refused to, to carry this event. Um, and there have been negotiations between Zoom Legal and UC Legal over the last week. Um, Jamal, you mentioned these new terms of service, right? That, that Zoom has agreed to with universities. Right. And you also, you also noted there are some exceptions. Right. And it looks like we found one of the exceptions yet again, right? And I think that brings it back to this question of, you know, the, the, the platforms are important. Zoom is important. Um, relations between corporations and universities are important to discuss. But it also touches on a much longer and ongoing issue of Palestinian exceptions, um, even something as fundamental as the First Amendment. Right. And uh, do you feel at this point that maybe the uh, universities are shrinking their responsibility uh, to protect basically their uh, faculty and, and students? I mean, in the past, there, there were always controversies. I remember that from the days when I was uh, on college campus. And uh, if you don't like the speaker, uh, you boo, uh, you demonstrate outside, but then the speaker comes and, 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 and speaks and the university uh, protects uh, you know, academic freedom. Now they seem to be hiding, kind of like these platforms are, is, uh, are creating a veil for them to point the finger to and say, well, you know, it's not our problem, it's your problem because you know, we can't do anything about it. Uh, instead of like coming with creative uh, ideas, for example, create their own platform, separate from Zoom, separate from Facebook, separate from YouTube. Why aren't they doing this? I, you know, I think you're right that it's very convenient, right? That it's that, that a university can espouse its values. We, uh, we welcome all perspectives. We welcome all viewpoints. We uh, have no issue with this talk or event or speaker. But these corporations won't let us do it. Right. Um, and I think that is, on the one hand, very, very convenient. It also speaks to a reality, though, a material reality of the disinvestment of the university. Right. And that universities have gradually privatized and turned over increasingly large parts of their operations, um, you know, willingly in most cases to these corporations. Um, and I think that provides them a certain amount of cover. Um, but I think it's also part and parcel of a larger model of the neoliberal turn in higher education over the last 20 years. And we're seeing the kind of impact of that in terms of technology and things like Zoom. Um, but this is a much larger story and it affects, it affects our students, it affects professors, it affects the ability of the university to serve the mission for which it was created. Um, and I think you find places like Palestine are flashpoints for this, right? Where those tensions become visible. Tensions and issues that have long lurked below the surface are visible when something like Palestine comes into the question, right? And, and it, it, it forces the hand of the university in, in a way that I think reveals some of these larger underlying trends. Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, what does it mean to teach Palestine in this uh, current climate? I mean, how can you move beyond this? I mean, I'm looking at this climate. It comes at a time that more, pe more and more people are outspoken about what Israel is doing in Palestine, the atrocities it's committing. Members of co uh, Congress, uh, recently Representative McCallum, are uh, coming with bills to restrict financial aid, U.S. aid to Israel because of these human rights violations. Yet we find a regression right here in academia. So what solutions do you have uh, to go about, uh, around this? 
if you don't mind me uh, going back to what you were talking about just now, Jamal, and maybe the starting point of the the bill that Betty McCollum just proposed, and part of the bill is actually about the, the rights of Palestinian children. And one of the rights of the Palestinian children and children anywhere is to education, to be able to go and study, to have a safe passage to school, not to have the school getting bombed, not to have the school being deprived of water, of electricity, to have books. And so this is a basic right for children around the world. It is not exclusive to Palestinians. So what McCollin is trying to do and her colleague is to uphold Israel to the same standards of international law that every other country is held up to. Now, what's going on is that Israel and its supporters have been defeated in the public relations game. I know they're trying to strong arm us, but at the end of the day, they're having a very hard time showing that, covering up for what Israel is doing. And this is why more and more and more people are speaking out. The more people are speaking out, the more Israel and, and its uh, lobby are trying to silence us. And this is just like a bully. I've said that before. A bully doesn't go away. A bully continues, continues, continues until you hold the bully accountable. They don't just listen to reason. They don't stop. So, and this is exactly what's going on with university campuses, with the Teaching Palestine. This is part of our Teaching Palestine uh, series. And this is why they were so very upset with it. And if you, they accused us of uh, me and uh, my colleague, Professor Tomomi Kinakawa, including by our university provost, uh, um, that we would be providing support for terrorism. We are actually violating the laws on material support for terrorism, MST, which Zoom has cited for shutting down the webinar. It's very, very interesting because I will just point out a few facts to, for, for your viewers, for your listeners, for everybody with us to just contemplate. One, uh, the, the webinar was supposed to be on September 23rd. Uh, and they shut it down because they said that they're not going to allow Leila Khaled to speak because they were worried about violating material support for terrorism. Now, October 3rd or so, Leila Khaled spoke on a Zoom webinar for an activist organization. And so we went and searched actually between September 23rd and October 3rd. Did Leila Khaled say anything that changed what her position is, who she is? What was, mind you, we weren't going to even discuss, discuss these issues. They weren't on our menu. It didn't happen. But there is a clue in an interview that NPR did with me, and they also included uh, Brooke Goldstein, the executive director of the Lawfare Project, in which she said something to the, to the, to the uh, point, and I'm paraphrasing, that, oh, they can do whatever they want, but they cannot do it as part of an academic program. And this is really the crux of the matter. So, for example, one of the things that I personally have started getting targeted was in, in, in 2014, after I led an academic and labor delegation to Palestine, and among 198 people, 198 people we met was Layla Khaled and Sheikh Raed Salah. At the time, Amcha, and Simon was in Thule Center, the Zionist Organization of America and their clique, came up with something saying that it needs to stop because I am misusing university funds to have people hear and speak and listen from uh, to Palestinian representatives. Of course, they misdistorted the truth and they only talked about two people of 198. But what was really telling the clue was that Amcha actually had started the, the attack earlier on in September 2013 and then carried it on 
to January and February 2014, when we were going to have an event to report on the de- on the delegation, what we've done. And then during the reporting, we spoke about building a collaborative agreement with Al-Najah National University in Palestine. They said there is no way. And then the Anti-Defamilation League, they reported that Palestinian universities are terrorist universities. This speaks about the whole question of suppressing not, not only suppressing education for Palestine, but suppressing the ability of us to speak about education for Palestine and suppressing the institutionalization of programs like the Ahmed Studies program, because if Ahmed Studies program is stopped, a lot of other faculty members, a lot of other colleagues, graduate students are going to be afraid. This is the chilling effect of McCarthyism to make people so afraid to teach about Palestine, to discuss Palestine. And if you look at the attack against us, it escalated with the more institutionalization of the program. The Edward Said scholarship that we started has been targeted. It continues to be targeted by the university now. They're trying to undermine and deplete it from what it is to to separate Edward Said from the scholarship after whom we called. There, they waged a huge attack, Campus Watch and Middle East Forum, against the collaboration we had with Al-Najah National University and tried to undo it. They, uh, they've been attacking Ahmed Sadis day in and day out. The university has been collaborating with it. But I want to just say, you know, part of this, Jamal, has to do with what you were saying, is that there is an active campaign. You started with a ministry, the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs, and an app that's connected with this uh, Ministry of Strategic Affairs called ACT-IL actually bragged after the silencing of the September 23rd event that they sent 19,000 messages to social media to say that this is, does not uh, uh, arise to uh, commit to community standards and so on. And the problem is that, as my colleague uh, Dr. Maloy said, is that social media is not is not really in the business of really verifying what's going on and checking. And so they will go and shut down the event right away because the environment in the United States, the public discourse in the United States, the main the mainstream status quo is sort of supportive of Israel. We're challenging that. We're teaching about Palestine and that challenging is unacceptable by the pro-Israel lobby. So they're moving to, to suppress it. The last point, the last part of the equation is that the university, our university, our San Francisco State University, received a lot of donations from Zionists and other right-wing white supremacist groups and so on. And they are very much colluding with that. So this is why I believe my university did not even step up, even though university president keeps saying she supports academic freedom. Every single statement she makes, she brings up the litany of talking about I condemn anti-Semitism. I condemn glorification of violence. I condemn terrorism and so on. And that's like, why do you say that when the event is not about that? And if it was really about material support for terrorism, we would we would have been arrested. Obviously, this is all noise. And we talk to all the lawyers and all the lawyers, legal scholars, everybody, legal authorities said this is not the case. And now it's proven that the UC legal, legal uh, scholars, u- university, are also saying that this is not a violation. So it was not a violation. However, the university, my university, succumbed to a private company that was intimidated by a pro-Israeli aggressor. That is that has very farther from the truth. And I think if you want to, maybe in a minute, we can also talk about the latest thing that Brock Goldstein promoted and spoke about on Twitter about 
you know, calling Palestine apartheid and actually citing a sign that Israeli military is the one who puts, which actually reaffirms that this is about apartheid. So eh, they're very flexible with the truth. Let's just put it that way if I want to be very generous. B is that the universities do not, some university presidents and leaders do not know what's going on. They are very much embedded in an orientalist, Islamophobic, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian racist discourse. That is the status quo for them, which is the very reason why we need this program at the universities. This is why we need to talk about it. And this is why we need to discuss the narratives of the indigenous people. Uh, Dr. Malloy, I mean, we heard the word McCarthyism. I'm sure <laughs> you've taught courses about this topic. Yeah. And uh, I see in this atmosphere, and with in this atmosphere, when I go back to uh, Israel's image, that's always its supporters trying to repair across the globe, and they have been unsuccessfully doing so, except. Now they are focusing on college campuses. I mean, and they're succeeding in a certain way because they're kind of arm-twisting administrations into succumbing to their demands. Is this the new McCarthyism? Is, 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 is the academia, is the new venue for McCarthyism now? Yeah, and I, it's, it's very clear that, that, um, that Israel supporters are, are worried. Uh, about college campuses, right? And I think that that is in some ways as, as much as this has been a struggle, right? And and Rabat has been struggling far longer and far harder than I have. Um, the mere amount of pressure that we face when putting on events like this indicates to me, as I think Rabat said earlier, that we have hit it. We have hit a weak, a weak spot. Um, and I, I think there is a lot of concern that college campuses offer a place not simply to shape opinion, but to but to create critical thoughts that are useful for organizing in the academy and beyond and changing these narratives, right? Um, and, you know, again, very, it's, it's very clear that, that you know, going back to the Stephen Saliva case and before, that Israel is very concerned about college campuses. And, you know, for my sins, I, I oftentimes listen to um, some of these pro-Israeli organization talks, right? I will sign up and listen to these talks. And they are terrifying about what's happening on college campuses. Um, and it's as someone who, you know, when putting on events like these feels embattled, I then listen to the description of what colleges, campuses are like from the pro-Israel side. And it sounds like a paradise that they sound, oh, well, the, all, all of these college campuses are against Israel. Um, and I, I think it's an indication that this really is a critical battlefield. And it's an important place for us to be putting some efforts. And it's not, I mean, it's not the only place, obviously, right? There, there are so many other campaigns um, where Bob put on a, a fantastic event on, on Saturday about, about prisoners, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to exceptionalize the university and, and sort of center the university in a way that's, that's not actually appropriate as part of a larger struggle. But I think in this case, the university is an important battleground for those ideas. It's an important place where you can, we can use our voices and our power to try to um, you know, center Palestinian narratives. And that's honestly a, a lot of what we wanted to talk about at this event on, on Friday, right, is, is how not to center uh, a Zionist or pro-Israeli viewpoint in talking about these issues, how to not always be reacting to silencing and to criticism and to charges of anti-Semitism or terrorism, but how to use the platforms we have to center decolonial and Palestinian notions of freedom and liberation. And um, that clearly is threatening to a certain subset of people. 
On April 12, uh, Facebook removed the events page uh, uh, for your for the panel. The next day, uh, the tech company shut down the page. Uh, uh, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi. Uh, so, what? Um, how can you now advertise uh, the event? What are you planning to do? To basically, I mean, they're trying to hit you from all directions. And I don't see anything coming from uh, any overture coming from the the UC or CSU to say, "Hey, we offer you something, an alternative." What's that alternative, if there is any? Well, I will leave the discussion of the alternative since this event is initiated by uh, my colleague Dr. Malloy and. Uh, Dr. Tomomi Kinakawa, myself, Salim Shahadi, and the panelists have all actually generously agreed to participate. I will uh, leave it to Dr. Malloy to speak about what are some of the possibilities and what are some of the ideas we're thinking about. But I want to uh, say that, yes, it is, it is look, Jamal, it, it takes a toll. Of course it takes a toll. And that's the whole effect of it. The effect of it is to make it so costly that we would give up. I mean, this is the, the attack again and again and again, shutting down the Ahmed Facebook page, which has the archives, years of archives of the webinars we've had, of an event we did on July 21st on Black Liberation, Black Lives, which had almost 15,000 views. Ahmed Facebook page has over 100,000 views, all organic, because a, we don't pay, but also we have no money. Because And the reason we have the Ahmed Facebook page, and you, we've talked about this on your show before, Jamal, is because the university put so many blocks, stumbling blocks, it's like checkpoints, in everything we try to do. Every time we want to do something, we have to fill out all sorts of paperwork. There is all sorts of uh, bureaucratic and uh, obstacles that they try to block. They cancel our courses. It happens again and again. So we have the Facebook page where we can reach out to our community, communicate with our students, post our webinars and so on. So that very act is not only shutting down the Facebook page of the event itself that they claim is problematic to them, but they're actually taking advantage of sort of like the, 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 the noise around the Facebook the, the event on September 23rd. And by the way, there is a lot of misinformation about it. So, for example, Stephen Emerson, who is one of the leading Islamophobes, who's supposed to be a counterterrorism expert, who was speaking a lot post 9-11, 2001, wrote an, an, an article and posted it in Campus Watch, where there is no mention by anybody else. Nobody else gets credit for, I'm, I'm getting all the credit, I'm organizing this, I'm the terrorist supporter, and so on. And in the process, actually, they erased the Facebook page for the prisoner event that we were doing on Saturday, that brought international prisoners to speak about what, are, what is going on, another set of Palestinian narratives. So now they silenced the Ahmed uh, Facebook page. But if you remember, Jamal, and I'm sure you do, this has been an issue. Since 2013, Simon Weisenthal Center actually attacked me on the Facebook page. One, they actually wrote to the dean and the president of the university at that time. Then they came again. And they, they made a very big deal of it when I criticized President Wong for welcoming Zionists to campus. And I posted the, the event on my Facebook page and it was copied on Ahmed. But then I also posted uh, the post by my students, Jews Against Zionism, who had a post and had a student saying, I am anti-Zionist, I am support Palestinian, uh, uh, Palestinian liberation, I'm anti against anti-Semitism, do not call me anti-Semitic. 
And so they made a very big deal of it. My dean first sent me three emails asking me to take it down. Then the provost sent me emails, including threat of disciplinary measures to take it down. I told her this is violation of my freedom of speech. This is violation of uh, my First Amendment. It is McCarthyism. And the Zionist continues doing that. And every single time I post something, they make a big issue of it. And they say, this is hate. And I say, okay, how is posting a banner of queers against Israeli apartheid hate? How is that promoting hate? Actually, that's promoting tolerance. That's promoting gender and sexual justice. That's promoting all of us coming together. It never stops. And the whole, and it's very clear. The goal is to shut down the Ahmed Studies program. The goal is to silence us. Look, we're going to reach out to people. On Saturday, we streamed the event live from Adamir. And then on top of it, four other organizations came and streamed it from their own positions, even though we know that there is cost because on September 23rd, all the co-sponsoring organizations received threats from Facebook that if you continue with this event, we're going to shut you down too. So people know that there is cost. The good news is that, A, this is really an important topic for learning. This is very exciting intellectually, academically. Everybody loves it. I mean, everybody attends, and this is why they're really bothered. We don't have any money. We do this on volunteer basis. We do this as an organic grassroots movement. That really bothers them, and it's gaining more and more and more support. B is that more and more people are doing it. Academics are organizing. People have already came together, issued a press release. Uh, the, some of the folks in the media are picking it up and so on. Look, the most important thing I will say to everybody, I will say that to Lawfare, I will say that to the Zionists, I'll, I'll say that to Lamhorn, the, the Congress, the right-wing congressman from Colorado Springs, who said that we're violating uh, national security and so on, we should be investigated. That's back in September, right? Or they threatened us. I will say that to President Mahoney, California State University, the allies, her allies in the Jewish Federation and the Jewish Community Relations Council, the whole Zionist pro-Israel lobby, we're not going to be silenced. We will not be silenced. We have something to say. We have something that's really important to educate about. And for me personally, I'm a Palestine scholar. If I don't study Palestine, and if I don't teach about Palestine, if I don't work about Palestine, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And I'm not going to do it. I mean, and I'm encouraged by all the support we're getting. And I'm encouraged that we're all coming together. We will find a way. We are going to, we always find a way. We always find a way. People did not find a way. <laughs> Movements have would not have succeeded and people would not have been liberated. I'm we sure you'll find, find a, way. a way. And I just have to say that the Hasbara machine, uh, the Israeli Hasbara machine and its surrogates, right here in the United States, have been losing on a daily basis. I mean, to me, I look at this, it's kind of like a distraction from their losses. Listen, in today, in the Jewish Forward, uh, they wrote an article about a New York City mayoral candidate, uh, Diane Morales, who traveled uh, on, on those uh, excursions, Hasbara excursions, and then came back to say that Israel is an apartheid state. I mean, they couldn't even win her over on a fully paid and 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 uh, curated travel. Uh, also, uh, look at even the, their own Israeli media covering also today about demonstrations right in Jerusalem by Israeli right wing chanting by the light trail uh, tracks, death to Arabs, right in the heart of Jerusalem. 
This story is all over the Israeli media, yet our own media uh, did not cover it. But nevertheless, it, it made headlines because of, uh, you know, uh, news travels much faster. So that I feel that this whole attack really targeting Ahmed and targeting academia is their last weak link because they're losing at all fronts. And the question to you, I go back to you, Dr. Malloy, and, and your university, it's a very important campus, the you, you know, University of California. Um, are they going to do something about it? I mean, I mean, that's this is the question. And how are you going to make connections with other campuses, UCLA, UC Irvine, etc., with other, you know, professors to kind of stand up and and speak out? Yeah, and, and I'll be honest that you know part of part of my motivation with, with this event was to put pressure on the University of California to stand up to its professed values. Right. Um, I'm actually in Berkeley today. I am about three blocks away from the place where the free speech movement started at the University of California, Berkeley campus back in 1964. Um, and, and the University of California um, speaks eloquently about the values of free speech and academic freedom. The question then becomes, are they willing to take actions to back up those words, right? And I think the answer to your question is we shall see, right? Um, we don't, we don't, we don't know. Um, but it's very, very important to hold institutions accountable to their professed values, um, because if they're not willing to live up to those professed values, what good are they? Um, and, and I think, um, you know, and you know, the, the UC is a system, right? I come from UC Merced. We are the newest and smallest of the campuses, um, but we are a system. We are a University of California system, and it is a system that that greatly celebrates its heritage of standing up for free speech. Um, of course, at the time, back at the start of the free speech movement in 1964, um, the opponents then were, 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 was the University of California itself, right? Um, the free speech movement started, although the university doesn't like to remember it this way, the free speech movement started as students rising up against the administration. Um, and now, of course, if, 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 you, if you ask the UC about free speech, they celebrate it. Um, so here's another opportunity, right? Here's an opportunity for the UC to live up to its professed values, its professed commitment to the freedom of speech and to academic freedom. And whether that happens or not um, is not in my hands. It's not in Rabab's hands. Um, but we have put before them the question. And institutions will be judged not by their words, but by their actions. And in, in the days to come, we'll find out. Dr. Abdul Hadi, we have a couple of minutes left. Where people can learn about this event? Where can they go to to support you and support Ahmed and uh, academic freedom? Yes, uh, that's I, usually, ordinarily, I would say to you, go to the Ahmed Facebook page, but they shut down the Ahmed Facebook page. But I want to say is that it is unacceptable. It is unacceptable to silence. And we're not going to stand up for it. We There is people who are actually organizing California Scholars for Academic Freedom, our faculty union, California Faculty Association at San Francisco State, uh, our colleagues. I believe that the UC uh, faculty is also going to insist we already, you already had a lot of discussions, uh, Professor Malloy, with your university about making sure that the event continues. The university says that it's committed. We are holding them to that. We're not going to accept that. So people can also check. Uh, I believe that a whole bunch of groups, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, Eyewitness Palestine, Palestinian Youth Movement, 
uh, National Student for Justice in Palestine, I believe that all of the stuff we are posting, we're posting on Twitter for the time being, we're posting on multiple social media, we're posting on word of mouth. So people just stay alert and help us. This is always, look, I'm going to say one thing. I grew up under Israeli occupation. We used to get the newspaper, Al-Quds newspaper, that has bookmarks in it. This Israeli censor will actually cut part of the newspaper. We still heard what was going on because there is always word of mouth. There are always ways for people to know. We just want to make sure. We want to hold the university accountable. We are going to continue doing what we're doing. What we promised, we will continue. We will uphold that promise. We just need everybody not to allow the silencing to go on. Stand up with us and say we will not be silenced. We want Ahmed Facebook page to be reinstated right away. We want us to be able to do what we want to do. We want to be able to hear. We don't want to allow these narratives to be silenced. This is really what's important. And this is also about the narratives of the history of UC, of the history of San Francisco State, of the 68 strike, of all the histories of the people. This is our responsibility, really pure and simple. This is our responsibility. And we just call on everybody else to stand by us and say with us, we will not be silenced. Dr. Shan Malone, uh, Sean Malloy and Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us, Jamal. Well, those are the voices and the faces of uh, Professor Rabab Abdelhadi at San Francisco State and Professor Sean Malloy at UC Merced. And Jamal, I have to say that this is quite a frightening, disturbing development in the role of social media acting, as you said, which I think is spot on, the, minist the Ministry of Information being able to decide on its own using these vague terms of service what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate. And what's even more disturbing about this, Jamal, is that it's occurring in an academic environment where these ideas, this is the place and space where these ideas should and ought to be debated and you know, engaged with uh, in a very, you know, uh, it's part of the space of academics and they're being shut down. You're absolutely right. And I mean, here, here is the thing. These big giants, multi-billion dollar uh, giants, they control millions of voices, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And, and the First Amendment does not apply to them. Right. Because they, uh, under the excuse that they are private companies and they have their own terms of service. But I don't know how that the First Amendment does not apply to them when they actually, in fact, replaced media in That's general. Right. That media itself, I'm talking about mainstream media and other, other uh, alternative medias, use them as a platform. I mean, That's CNN... Right has a channel on YouTube. CNN is on Facebook, on Twitter, etc. Fox News, NPR, you name it, they rely on them. So in that way, this has to be revisited that they are they, that they are given the, this much control and, and, and this power over individual voices, over journalists, over academics, and they are held above the law, which is the First Amendment. But I will say that there is a move in Congress and ironically speared on by the Republican Congress and Republican Senate, 
trying to rein in a little bit the the uh, control and power that social media has right now. And, you know, I made a very unpopular statement before, I think it was last week or the week before, which I'm, I, I don't know if I, I'm really not in favor of Donald Trump being silenced on social media. I mean, if he, if he, if he promotes hate and if he promotes, you know, uh, sedition, yeah, of course, but he's still being silenced on Facebook. He's still being silenced on Twitter. And, you know, these social media giants do not stand outside the law of the First Amendment, in my opinion. I'm sure this is not going to be the last time we hear about this. And certainly the Congress ought to take this up in the current session. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. I want to switch gears here, Israel, and talking about who's above the law. Exactly. Uh, and that's, again, Israel and Israeli settlers. Are above who, the law. Above international been, law. Yeah. Yeah. Who have been attacking Palestinians for the past week on a daily basis right. in Hebron and Jerusalem. Right. And, uh, of course, uh, Israel has been ethnically cleansing now entire Palestinian families from uh, their homes in, in, in Sheikh Jarrah and in Shafat and in, in Silwan, right? And no coverage in None. U.S. media. No, it's, we hear about missiles dro- dropping in the Negev. Missiles? The, one missile. One missile. One missile. That's the breaking that's, news. That was fired from Syria and landed in the desert, which in, in the Negev, which was not too far from the Dimona, basically atomic bomb machine that Israel has. It's not just a, a, your average nuclear reactor. This is where the, the, where the whole manufacturing of uh, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East, by the way, that's the, that's the location. And this has become big news, talking about Israel retaliating against Syria and bombing Damascus and, and, and you know protecting itself. But all these attacks on a daily basis that are actually covered by Israeli media, they're yes, not on, in, ironically, in the news here. Ironically. What's going on, Jess? Well, you know, we know what's going on, Jamal. We know that this is part of the Israeli Hasbara control. If we're going to talk about the... If we're going to talk about how things kind of are sorted out in the media here, you actually have more spirited debate about Israeli atrocities in the Israeli press than you have in the American press. You and I have been speaking about it. You have written about it. This is yet another painful example when Israeli military and paramilitary and Israeli settlers are able to basically not just harass but destroy the property of Palestinians in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, in Hebron, and kind of create havoc, and not a peep of that anywhere, not only in the mainstream media here, Jamal, but what about in the Congress, as long as we're talking about taking a stand on these illegal uh, activities that they engage in on a regular basis. So instead, we hear this, oh my goodness, Israel is under attack from a missile from Syria into Demona. I saw a picture of the uh, remains of that missile. I don't know what you think, Jamal. Did it look like a missile to you that was really uh, breaking news that should be covered on uh, CNN and all the mainstream media? It's like, really? Give me a break. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, you can have too many readings in that missile. Supposedly, one, one reports is an Aaron missile, and then therefore Israel retaliated. But right. then it's an Aaron missile because Israel keeps flying over Syrian airspace, and from time to time, the Syrians shoot uh, SAM missiles targeting Israeli warplanes, and probably one of those missiles went there. The other argument is that, well, Israel has been bragging for the past uh, few weeks about uh, sabotaging the, uh, nu uh, the Iranian nuclear program, and then perhaps Iran wanted to send a message. Yes, yeah. So that's another thing you can read into this, but you know, Syria has nothing to do with this. I mean, the Syrian economy is in shambles, the government is in shambles. Uh, they are not in, a in any position to launch a war uh, against Israel. No, and that's exactly right, Jamal. So, you know, we we will cover this story because, you know, as you and I have talked about, there is this strategic thing that the Israelis do. When when the news is directed away from them, if there are other things going on, you know, George Floyd trial, uh, climate summit, all the large economic news that's happening, you know, in the world, the COVID outbreaks in India and in Brazil, it's a perfect opportunity for Israeli illegal settlers to harass and destroy more Palestinian, uh, you know, property. So we will continue to report on this on a daily basis. And I am not optimistic that this is going to come up anywhere in the media uh, anytime soon. You're absolutely right. So finally, Jess, uh, Derek Chauvin was found guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. Uh, but there are those who are denying that the verdict is, is just. Uh, right. You know, uh, right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you watch Fox News, you got the likes of Tucker Carlson, uh, who's questioning the jury's motivation in reaching its guilty verdict. Outrageous, uh, yeah. Yeah, Outrageous. I, mean, I mean, at a time when there is a glimmer of hope that justice has been served, you have those who are saying, well, the jury was afraid from the mob because they were saying, please don't hurt us. And I'm actually quoting uh, Tucker Carlson, Carson right. saying that this is why, and, and of course we know that the jurors were sequestered, they weren't watching what's happening uh, outside. Right. And then, and then he, 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 he was asking, can we trust the way this decision was made? Well, I mean, I mean, would you say this about no, any other trial when you no, found someone it's, it's an killing or murdering yeah. a white person? It would never happen, Jamal. And we, you and I know that. Uh, we know that it happens all the time. Uh, it's an outrageous attack on our judicial system. It's, it's like saying, Jamal, the judicial system is okay if it rules and makes decisions that I like but is unfair and unjust if it rules in ways that I don't like. And that's essentially what Tucker Carlson is saying. I do want to say, though, and this may not be a very popular thing to say, I'm not convinced that justice was served in, the, in, in, in these triple guilty verdicts that were leveled against Derek Chauvin because George Floyd is dead. Uh, what you have is accountability of one police officer. We have 
accountability, but not justice. And I think it's important to make that uh, distinction right now because in a few months, Jamal, the three other police officers who bore witness and stood by as George Floyd was being murdered are going to be coming up for trial too. And what about the African-American men and women that get killed every day? So whether or not this is real justice, I think only time will tell if this is a turning point or if this is just a, a, a blip of uh, an ability for all of us to breathe and let out a sigh of relief that, okay, at least this happened. You know, Jamal, you know, since that verdict came out, I don't know, three or four more black men and women have been murdered by the police. So it's we we not we can't get ahead of ourselves on getting too optimistic about this. I think only time will tell. I'm with with you on this one. I mean, I look at it. Yes, I I see justice for and thankfully for George Floyd and his family and George Floyd rest in peace. But I don't see justice in an entire system, and I right. think this is what you mean. I mean, in this case, luckily the jury kind of. So what it was, you know, a plan. Believe lynching, your eyes. Yeah, as the prosecution believe your said, eyes. believe your eyes. And, and thankfully for the young lady who captured it all on camera. Yeah. So the big question mark, if she wasn't there and if this wasn't captured on camera, I don't know if you read the police report that was released. I did. Yes. No, I did. And, and they were talking, the police, as if they were trying to save the life of George Floyd, that the, he was... Out of control. He suffered a medical, yeah, a medical yeah. Uh, episode. And they, you know, I mean, <laughs> they didn't talk anything about the nine and a half minutes kneeling on his neck and him pleading, I can't breathe. They said, oh, we've uh, arrested this guy who who was on drugs and he suffered a medical condition. And this would have been swept under the rug. You know as, that. As it is every day, Jamal. And so I, I want to put this in a little bit of a historical context. I mean, you and I are are old enough to remember Rodney King and, you know, the Rod, Rodney King getting beaten mercilessly by a number of police officers in Southern California. And that was caught on videotape and nothing happened. So fast forward 30 years, if we want to be honest about the progress we've made, you know, it's kind of sobering. Yes, the videotaped, the videotaped, the, the video of uh, George Floyd's, you know, grotesque murder was there. But, you know, I'm not convinced that had this occurred in another month ago or a month from now in a different location, who, who's to say that a jury would believe their eyes? So we still have a long way to go, Jamal, even when we have, you know, documented evidence of police brutality and murder. Police officers do get away with that against black and brown people every day. Well, uh, you need a system reform. Yes. Uh, and sadly, the few who commit these murders, I mean, they tarnish entire police departments. And right. this is uh, something also very important. Not every single police person or policeman or woman are out there to, uh, you know, kill people. No, we're, but, we're, talking that, about, we're talking about a number of people who are in the police. Yeah, and you're talking about these, these, these few bad apples. And, but also there is a system that does not hold them accountable. That, Correct. That, creates a, an atmosphere 
for them that to get away with these things and, and like protect I said, e- and protect each other and protecting each other and luckily for eyewitnesses and for uh, cameras we wouldn't have known anything about these things that's right so keep your keep your cell phones out all the time that's why brown and black people jamal when they get stopped by the police the first thing you know we all do is turn on our uh, cell phones and hit the video or the audio to record everything that happens because you just never know. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website arabtalkradio.com to download all our episodes there and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.